All right. Good morning, beloved. It's great, really great to be with all of you here today. I can't think of uh, any other place to be. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. We are in Colossians chapter 2 as we continue in our series, Christ Alone, a verse-by-verse study of this great epistle. And the text we're going to be looking at this morning will be verses 4 through 8. I titled today's sermon, Rooted and Built Up in Christ. We all need to be rooted and built up. In Christ, and He is faithful to do that. Let's uh, read our verses this morning first, and then after we can look at each of them more closely. Again, we're in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 4. And these are the words of the living and true God. Paul writes in verse 4 I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. In verses 4 through 8, the Apostle Paul gives a warning. Really, it's a wake-up call about an encroaching threat that will endanger the spiritual well-being of those at the church in Colossae. And this looming threat is the infiltration of false teaching that, as we've discussed, has come to be known as the Colossian heresy. And the Colossian heresy was incredibly dangerous as it was multifaceted. It was made up of four main elements that merged together to form one heresy. And Paul devotes almost the entire second chapter of Colossians to exposing these errors. And so by way of just introduction, I want to take a moment and highlight for you these four strands. These, they're really like four muddy streams all flowing together to form this one polluted river. And this morning, we will touch on the first one in verse 8, which is, Philosophy, philosophy, a very damning false teaching and a deception that Satan uses. And then second, he touches in verse 16 on Jewish legalism, an attempt to put believers under the dietary food laws of the Old Testament and um, certainly involved um, circumcision as well in order to be saved. And then the third strand, as you go through, is found in verse 18, and we could identify this as Eastern mysticism. 
Um, and mysticism involved the worship of angels and private revelations from God and visions. It's the new age today, just repackaged. God told me, God told me, stop saying God told me. God can lead, he can prompt. God has spoken in his word. The more you keep saying God told me, you're encouraging people to think that every time they hear a voice in their head, it's God speaking. That's Eastern mysticism. And then fourth, another strand that's found is in verses 23, 21 through 23 is called asceticism. And aesthetic is, uh, aesthetic is someone who lived a life of vigorous self-denial. Think of the monks. Um, it's if I don't touch certain things, if I don't eat certain things, then I will show myself to be even more spiritual than you. Even though God has given us richly all things to enjoy. <laughs> but again, people do it today still. They're still doing it. And, you know, when all four of these came together in Colossae, it was a knockout punch. It was enslaving these Christians all over again. It was a, a potent bottle of heresy. Here you go. Drink this down and re-enslave yourself after Christ has just freed you in liberty in Christ. Go do all of these things to show yourself to be approved and, and spiritual, more spiritual than the others. And so Paul, we'll see over the next couple of weeks, he's going to deal with each of these four strands one at a time. And today we will see the first of them. It's mentioned at the end philosophy and really nothing could be more relevant for us to be looking at today as there is false teaching all around us i mean if you turn on christian television what do you see false teaching it's everywhere if you go into the few christian bookstores that are left what do you see false teaching half the books in there are if not three quarters are absolute junk they're lies from the devil uh, you turn on Christian radio, what do you hear? False teaching. Not, not to say all of it is, but there's a lot of it that is there. You look on the internet, what do you see? False teaching. There's false teaching everywhere, and it wants to affect the way that you see God and the Bible and how you live the Christian life and what you think of salvation. And the same deceptions that were going on in Paul's day is still with us today, just again, repackaged and in different forms and usually called by different names. And so as we walk through this passage, I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to think that everything that has the name Christian on it is Christian. It's not. It's not. It really isn't. You need to have your antennas up and your eyes open and looking at the Word of God and saying, is that what God's Word says? And if it's outside of God's Word, it ain't the truth. It's a lie. And so Christ is the standard. His word is the standard. And when you don't see it in scripture and you've come up with this thing or someone's told you about this thing and you go, where is that in scripture? Um, well, it's not, but you know, I heard of it. Hello, hello. And uh, how many of our churches are true churches today? I mean, it's, 
really bad. It is really bad. And if you think everything's going on just fine, and oh, we live in a Christian nation, and all these people are Christian, I mean, there is a wide road heading to destruction. A wide road. And many are on it. Few are on the narrow. That's what the Lord Jesus said. And so our attention now needs to be turned to the text as Paul is giving a warning. It's a warning to the church. And if you're a part of the church, it is a warning to you. Um, <clears throat> let's begin with number one and the warning. Um, and really, for the first time in Paul's letter, he warns explicitly about false teaching. Notice what he says in verse four. Paul writes, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. Now, when Paul says, I say this, that this refers back to verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul's point here is that everything you need to, that you need to know in your Christian life is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 4, I say this, that everything is in Christ, so that no one will delude you. All the treasures, everything that you need is in Christ. Why would you be looking anywhere else? And yet we do, don't we? We do. Every little rabbit hole, we're going down it. And so let's look at this for a moment. This word for delude means to be led away from the truth. It means to reason falsely with someone or to deceive somebody. And the way deception works is it, it's usually very subtle in the beginning. You know, Satan's usually not behind the pulpit um, with the horns and the pitchfork and in the red suit. No, he's all dressed up in the nice suit and the tie and the slick words and the fancy car and the jets. And those are the big churches that we have in our country now. Deception, the way it works, is usually just very subtle in the beginning. You know, it starts as just sort of one small step off the path, followed by another small step, and another small step, till pretty soon you are so far away, you are no longer in the truth. The truth is nowhere to be found where you've ended up. And so Paul says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. This term persuasive argument is just one word in the Greek, and the idea of it is decept, uh, deceptive reasoning. Most people relegate false teachings to blatant heresies and obvious contradictions in Scripture, but more often than not, deception comes by founder, uh, counterfeits that closely resemble the truth, right? You don't have a counterfeit bill that looks like something you've never seen before. It looks pretty close to the original. That's how the deception comes. One theologian writing about de deception wrote this quote I thought was pretty good. Lies that are camouflaged, they are lies that are camouflaged to the undiscerning heart and are delivered through convincing personalities that are persuasive and even seem sincere. You ever hear that before? Well, they sounded sincere. They are masters of their trade, enticing, using enticing words you can hear the slithering of satan's tongue there have always been false teachers going all the way back to the serpent in the garden and the fall of man it was there in the beginning and since it has always been a threat to the church 
the rest of the Bible is filled with warnings about it. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15? Beware of the false prophets who come to you, look like a Christian, they sound like a Christian, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, was warning the elders before he went back to Jerusalem of Ephesus to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, again, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among, notice, your own selves. Men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And then there was the Apostle Peter, who you'll recall from our time in 2 Peter, calls the false teacher springs without water and mists driven by a storm. And Peter warns that following the false teacher's path will leave you uh, thirsty and, and unquenched, like a dried up spring or, or a lurking rain cloud that provides, oh, just a little bit of a mist and their teaching will lead you to disappointment. Jude also warns about hidden reefs. These false teachers hide beneath the surface, and you don't see them until your life comes sailing along their path, and they shipwreck your faith. Jude refers to them as clouds without water also. They are like autumn trees without fruit. They secretly introduce destructive heresies, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, Peter says. And so that is the warning. And of such men, I also echo Paul's warning to you. Be alert. Be on guard. You must be discerning and anchored only in Christ alone. And you must be well-taught and well-versed in the Scriptures to be able to recognize the lies that they are saying. And that leads us to number two and the affirmation the affirmation paul now wants to affirm the believers that though they are in the midst of surrounding danger that they would continue to be firm in the faith and so he says in verse five for even though i'm absent in body nevertheless i am with you in spirit now just to remind you paul is writing while he's in house arrest in rome and the church in colossae is in Asia Minor, which is nearly a thousand miles away from Paul in Rome. And so Paul wants them to know that though I'm not with you physically, nevertheless, I'm with you spiritually. And then he says he's rejoicing as he's heard about their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, they have not bought into the devil's lies from these false teachers. They're standing strong. And so Paul rejoices because he wants the church to be strong in the truth. Now in verse 5, Paul uses two military terms. First, he uses your good discipline. And in the original language, it means um, soldiers that, that line up um, in a line in a formation. They would be um, shoulder to shoulder, as it were, almost arm in arm together, or like lock in step. And Paul rejoices that they have not broken rank. 
that they have stand firm in line. He rejoices that though they are under attack by these false teachers, that they have held their position, that they've held the high ground and they haven't been lured over to the other side where the false teachers are. They've maintained good discipline in the Lord. And then he says, and the stability of your faith. And stability is another military term, which means firmness or, or strength. And so this is the source or the, the strength that enabled them to hold that position when they were under the attack from the enemy. And the whole key of it is those last two words of verse 5, in what? Christ. Because they are anchored in Christ. They are anchored in the teaching of Christ, the doctrine of Christ. And they will not be moved. They will remain in Christ through good discipline, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, lock in step together with the other believers and the stability of your faith will remain in Christ. And so this underscores a supreme importance for you and for me to be well grounded in the doctrines and the teachings of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why the book of Colossians is so important because the central theme of this epistle is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That if you have Christ, you have everything you need. That if you have Christ, you have everything that you want. That leads us now to number three and the exhortation. The exhortation is in verses six and seven, and these are some really important verses, so pay attention. Notice what he says there in verse six. He says, therefore, so since that is true, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The word received points back to their conversion when they first received Christ Jesus as Lord over their lives. And, and then Paul says something interesting. If you don't pause here for a moment, you'll, you'll go right by it. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And in other words, just as you have received him, so also you walk in him. Question, how did you receive him? By faith, right? That's how you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, by faith. We need to know this. And so he's saying, just as you started this whole walk with him, with Jesus, by faith, now keep walking in him the same way. And before you sort of cast this whole thing off on being just incredibly obvious and no real meat on it, I want you to consider this thought in light of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And I like the NIV's rendering of this verse. Notice what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 17. He writes, For in the gospel a righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness, that is, here it is, right? By faith. And then notice this phrase, from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And there he's quoting Habakkuk. Now, I want you to go back to that phrase for a moment that the NIV translates from first to last. See that there? I like that translation here because in the Greek, the literal word-for-word -word translation is from faith to faith. But we wouldn't really say it from faith to faith. Because what Paul is meaning here is from start to finish, live by faith. Okay? 
Think of it this way. Remember in the start when you first received Christ Jesus as Lord and you put your faith in Him? Remember that? Well, keep doing that all the way through to the end. That's what Paul means. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteousness will live, the righteous will live by faith. Now, some of you might hear this and be thinking, of course we live by faith. What other way is there to live? And I'll just tell you this. I know a lot of people know this, but not a lot of people live it. A lot of people know this, not a lot of people live it. There are a lot of people I've seen that after they've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, by faith, who then over time start to live more by human effort. It happens all the time. We are saved by grace through faith, and then little by little over time, we are living spiritually through our human effort. And a lot of people are really blind to it. You think that you're living by faith, but then something happens in life. Something like we just went through with mom. A loved one is terribly sick or is dying, or suddenly something causes everything in your world to be, oh no, falling all apart around you. And then you see how someone else is living through their trials and testings and the trust that they have in Christ and that real tangible strength in the Lord and comfort, which you don't have, you're an absolute mess, and you think, man, I want some of that. Every time this little thing happens in my life, I'm just in shambles and pieces. And so what do you do? You, you pull up your bootstraps and you roll up your sleeves and you try harder. You will it to happen. And pretty soon you've moved from this place of faith and trusting in Christ to this place of work and human effort where you think, well, if it's going to change, it's going to have to be up to me. I'm going to have to do it. And so what Paul is saying here in Colossians is just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, so keep walking by faith. So continue to walk in Him by faith. And then as Paul said in Romans 1.17, for in the gospel the righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Question, are you living by faith? And, you know, this is really the essence of what Paul was writing to the churches in Galatia about when he was confronting them and the fact that they had started listening to these false teachers who were coming in and saying, oh, sure, you know, faith is great to start with, but now if you really want to be a true Christian, you're going to have to start doing, right? And there was the dietary laws to follow and the festivals that you needed to attend and you needed to keep the Sabbath. And, oh, did we mention you need to get circumcised? And on and on it went. And this is what the Colossian church was dealing with. It was always something else. It was, no, you don't have to get rid of Christ and faith in Christ, but it's Christ plus this you need christ plus the secret wisdom of the of the special teacher and you need christ plus you got to refrain from these foods and these drinks and the way you do this and that and pretty soon you've got a whole list running down your wall 
And before you know it, sometimes we can read the Bible and start seeing like lists of things to do. I would encourage all of you to be note takers and praise the Lord for those who take notes and take the study of God's word seriously. You just don't want to start interpreting God's word though as a list of things that you got to do. Or before you know it, it'll be a yoke that is un, you are unable to bear. And remember what Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy with laden, and I will give you rest. So on one end, we have a very moral book where the Bible says, hey, don't do this, don't do that. But on the other end, it's not a, a moral book in the sense of what the Pharisees took the law to be as a list of do's and don'ts and things that you needed to do. And so we need to have a moral compass so we know with clarity what God wants for us and what God doesn't want for us. But what we're not supposed to do is then turn that into a list of things that we need to be following or doing. Doing, doing. It's always more for you to do. Pretty soon your whole wall is covered with notes of things to do. And I don't know about you, it just becomes such a heavy burden. And that's what was going on in Galatia. And so Paul's response to all this is he writes to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 3, um, in, in, in Galatia that was a province with a whole bunch of churches. And so he writes them and he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun, having started by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the flesh here speaks of the human effort, and he's talking post-salvation. And so he says, are you now trying to be perfected by your good works and your human effort? And we, I witness this happening still today. Believers are falling into the same error as the Galatians fell into. So I ask you, beloved, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit of God? Are you now turning back to try to earn God's love by being perfected by works of the flesh? Beloved, beloved, for as your salvation goes, there is nothing for you to now add to. The way that you are saved is the way that you are sanctified. You are saved through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and you grow as a Christian through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what Paul says at the end of verse 6. As you have received... Christ Jesus the Lord. How did you receive him? By faith. So walk in him. Continue to walk by faith. By faith. It's all in Christ. Everything you need to know and do is found in Christ. It's in his truth. It's in his power. We follow his steps, his example, his will, his guidance, his grace, it's all in Christ. Listen, if it's not in Christ, you don't need it. If it's not in Christ, you don't want it. Everything you need and want is found in Christ. So Paul says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Our life in Christ begins with faith and is that same faith that will carry us through to the end. Now, what does that look like to walk in Christ or, you know, uh, John 15 to 
abide in Christ or to continue in Christ. Not by my power, but through Christ. Well, that's what the next verse is all about. Notice verse 7. As here, Paul gives us um, four descriptions of what that looks like. He begins by saying, having been firmly rooted. Now, this also points back to their conversion in verse 6 when they received Christ Jesus the Lord. That was when they were firmly rooted in Christ. Now, this indicates that we started somewhere else, right? Uh, we once were living in a barren wasteland, a, a weary and dry land, a desert, if you will. And someone came and uprooted us and transplanted you in Christ. And that's what regeneration is. That's what the new birth is. God said in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. So when you received Christ Jesus, remember what it said back in Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We who were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins were living in a desert wasteland and the grace of God came and he uprooted you and has now transplanted you in Christ. It's pictured in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, how a blessed man will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. He didn't start there. He's been firmly planted there by Christ. So that's why this is like the passive voice. It's referred to as the um, uh, perfect tense. And that simply means it's an event that was completed in the past, but it continues into the present. In other words, no one will ever be firmly rooted in Christ and then sometime later down the road will be unrooted in Christ. Now, why is it important that we be firmly rooted in Christ? Well, Ephesians 4.14 gives a great answer to that. It says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, when you are firmly rooted in Christ and some strange teaching comes along that isn't aligned with the Word of God, you are not going to be lured away by deceitful schemes and every wind of human doctrine. But when trials and temptations come, you are not going to be a child in the faith that now is just tossed to and fro by every wave that comes along and carried about by every gust of wind. No, because the believer walks in Christ. You have a living faith. You know Christ personally and His Word because you have been firmly rooted in Him. And that's not all. Notice what he says next. And now being built up in him. Now this is referring to our sanctification. And, and please note, you can even see this in the English, the, the verb tense changes. It's no longer looking to the, the past, having been firmly rooted. It's now a, a continuing result. 
It's in the present tense now. And now being built up in Him day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, because you have been firmly rooted in Christ, you are now being built up in Him. Everyone who has received Christ Jesus the Lord walks in Him. For having been firmly rooted in Christ, they are now being built up in Him. There is no such thing as a believer who walks in Christ, who's firmly rooted in Christ, who's not being built up in Him <laughs> to some degree. In other words, Christ is the fertile soil into which you have been rooted in. Like a tree with deep roots, as our roots grow down deeper in Him into this rich soil, not only is He the source of eternal life, but as our roots grow down and spread out into Him, He also provides our stability and strength to be built up in Him. How are we being built up in Him? Verse 7, and established in your faith. Now, this is also in the present tense, but it's in a, a passive voice, which means someone else is keeping you established. It means even when you're weak, even when, man, you feel like throwing your hands up in the air, when you feel defeated, even when you find yourself at the, in the midst of a catastrophe and you don't feel like you have the strength to go on, something else is establishing you in your faith. They are keeping you strong on the inside, even if you may feel like that you're collapsing on the outside, there's a spiritual backbone, if you will, that is keeping you established in the faith, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, just as you were instructed. Now this looks back to the beginning of their walk in Christ. As Paul indicates once again, these believers were well-versed in the Word of God as they were instructed by their pastor Epaphras here. And Paul indicates that they had continued to be instructed in God's Word. And this underscores the importance of godly instruction that the Christian life necessitates that we be growing in the knowledge and will of God. Remember, this is what Paul was praying for on their behalf back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. I'll just read verses 9 and 10. Paul said, For this reason also, since the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, of God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then Paul finishes this thought in verse 7, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. Let me say this about overflowing gratitude. Believers who are firmly rooted in Christ and are now being built up in Him and are established in their faith as you were instructed will overflow with gratitude. Those who are not firmly rooted in Christ, those who are not being built up in Him, those who are not established in their faith as instructed are those who will collapse in the midst of trials and difficulties. They go through life always seeing the glass empty, half empty, not half full. But for those who walk in Christ Jesus, 
they are overflowing with gratitude. Their mouth is a perpetual fountain of giving thanks to Christ and what God is doing in their life. Do you not see this in your own life? Do you not see the more that you are filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you then are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing in Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work? That's what God's Word says. That's the promise. That's the principle. That as you grow in these great truths of Scripture, that you notice in your own life a heart that is grateful, a heart that is humble in service, that can rise up regardless of the circumstances and give thanks to God and be of service to His people. I trust that that you are doing that. And if you need more gratitude in your life, go back to Christ, go back to the cross, go back to the foot of the cross and see, see you the unworthy sinner that God in all of His worth took all of your sin and shame and bore that penalty, the penalty that you deserved, He bore on that tree for you. That doesn't start giving you a heart that's overflowing with thanksgiving. I don't know what will. That leads us to our final point, number four, the deception. Paul now tells the Colossians about this danger that is lurking. And the first element of this danger that will be attempting to pull them away from walking in Christ, and that is philosophy. Notice what it says there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. We'll stop right there for a moment. Paul begins this verse with the word see, and the see indicates that you keep your eyes out open for, for this. See that, see that no one does this to you. You, you are in a dangerous place and they are swarming around you with false teaching and you need to keep your eyes open for this danger. See to it that no one, and that no one refers to the false teachers. It's the same no one mentioned there in verse 4. See to it that no one takes you captive. To be taken captive means to be kidnapped, to be taken as a prisoner, to be put in chains and to be let off to the slave market all over again. And that's what false teaching does. It ties you up in such a way that you can no longer walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And what is it that causes you to be taken captive? Here he says, through philosophy. What about that word philosophy? What does that mean? Well, you can see it actually in the first part of the word, phileo, which means love, and then sophia, which means wisdom. And you sort of put those two together. You have philosophy, which means the love of wisdom. Now, this wisdom refers to worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. And it refers to man's attempts to understand, you know, life's questions. And we got questions, right? Because really, philosophy is a worldview. It's how you see the world. It's how you see yourself in the world. It's how you see the world of education and the world of politics and the world of medicine. And this philosophy in verse 8, of which Paul warns about, about is coming out of Athens and it's coming out of the academies and Plato and Aristotle and it's um, you know man's attempt to, to answer the questions of who am I? You know, why am I here? How did I get here? Well, what is the meaning of life? What should I be doing? How should I live? How do I find 
um, true happiness. Uh, what is right? What is wrong? What happens to me after I die? And philosophy attempts to answer those questions that need to be answered, and worldly philosophy provides man's solutions to these questions. And one person summed up philosophy in this way, for from man and through man and to man are all things. To man be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Sounds a little familiar. In our verse, but philosophy says that man is at the center of all things, that man is the reason for all things, that man is the means of all things, that he is the purpose of all things. And that's the kind of a flyby view of philosophy. And, you know, if you were a philosophy major in college, you were probably taught all about the bankruptcy of man's attempts to resolve these fundamental questions. And they're all drawn from empty wells of man's deluded thinking. They really are. Man's wisdom is just that. And so he describes philosophy now in the middle of verse 8 when he says empty deception. Paul, what do you think of worldly philosophy? Empty deception. It's all empty. It's vain. It's worthless. It's fruitless. It's fraudulent, in fact, because it is a lie and it's a deception that is straight from hell and it camouflages itself just enough to attract you and to lure you in with the intellect, that stimulation of knowledge and wisdom, the love of knowledge. But in reality, it's nothing. It's nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing because it will damn your soul to hell. And he goes on to describe it. He says, according to the tradition of men. It, it all comes from men. Men locked up in a, in a room together and it's really passed down from one generation to the next, one century to the next, repackaged, redefined, sifted and sorted out. And Paul says it's according to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this elementary principles is just one word in the original language and it means a row of letters, basically your uh, ABCs. They're the ABCs of the world. Congratulations, you learned A, B, C. We'll move on to our next class. It's, the, it's kindergarten. It's childish, simplistic thinking for man. And the world, oh, it applauds it as being so brilliant. And Paul says, no, it's actually absolutely stupid, really. And here's an example, just one example of a philosophical worldview in which you and I live. Nothing created everything. Right? That's what they'll teach your kids in school. Uh, in the beginning, there was nothing, and then that nothing created everything. It's incredible. And everyone goes, wow, that sounds pretty smart. In the beginning, God. God created. Really, you can't think of anything more stupid than nothing created everything, but they're coming up with them. And they, you know, it's so profound. It, isn't, that in, isn't it insane? Isn't that a scientific impossibility? 
that nothing created everything? Everything? I'm still working on that. I hope to achieve such knowledge, but... You know, and this logical conclusion of worldly thinking um, leaves God out of the equation that God is the creator, that God is the creator of all life, that he knitted each one of you in your mother's womb. And if you strip God out of this world, you are left with a mind that cannot function. So, no wonder Paul warns the church in Colossae about empty deception of philosophy. And then he ends in verse 8 and he says, rather than according to Christ. Rather than according to Christ and his teaching and his truth and his doctrine and what Christ says about the world and you. Solus Christos. Listen, the philosophy of the world and the teaching of Christ are in direct opposition of the other. You, you can't have, there's no common ground in it. You, you can't have a little slice and a little slice and put it together. The two are, are mutually exclusive. They're not inclusive. The two are um, intolerant of each other. They're incompatible with one another. They have nothing in common whatsoever. One is the truth and one is a lie. It is light and darkness. It is heaven and hell. And so, Paul has to speak to this issue. It's not just neutral. It's not harmless. It's not some new perspective. No, it's an old perspective. It's as old as in the Garden of Eden and the serpent. Did God really say? Philosophy has a hiss in it, and it's the hiss of the serpent. So Paul warns them, and he warns us, you don't need anything but Christ alone. That's where we'll end the sermon today. If you are in need of prayers, I want to invite you to please come forward. And again, I just want to take a moment and thank you all for um, the prayers uh, this week. We're, we are truly blessed by the family that God has given us here. And please stand as we praise the Lord, the goodness of our God. Thank you.